morning, Emmanuel. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. The title of the sermon this morning is The Grace of Life in Jesus Christ. And I say the grace of life in Jesus Christ because it is grace that we have life in Christ that is undeserved because of our sin. And when I speak of the life in Jesus Christ, I'm speaking of that abundant and glorious life that we have through relationship with Christ, through knowing Him, um, the fulfilling and satisfying life that we have in Jesus, and spiritual life that we have, and the ability to know Him and have a relationship with Him and be at peace with God and be satisfied in Him. When I think of this passage, sometimes I like to think of a fairy tale uh, because... Um, in a sense, the Christian life is like a fairy tale in, in the sense that you have the prince who rescues the, a woman out of her low estate and makes her a princess and then shows kindness to her and takes care cares for her. Um, and in a sense, that analogy works, except, let's say, we're talking about Cinderella. The problem with using Cinderella is that Cinderella had pretty good character. She was a pretty good young lady and hard worker and humble and good. And she kind of deserved the prince, in a sense. <laughs> but in our case, we were more like the wicked stepsisters. Uh, we don't deserve the prince, but the prince rescued us as wicked stepsisters and took us out of our low estate. And to use a more biblical analogy, you have Lazarus, who was dead when Jesus arrived in John chapter 11, and he was already in the grave, in the tomb for four days when Jesus got there. So not only dead, but decaying, smelly, foul, um, not, a, not a bit of life in him. And um, this is what we were without Christ, spiritually dead, incapable of any life toward God or relationship toward God. We were his enemies, we were foul and stinking, and we talked about this in my last sermon on Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 1, verses 3, and I'm just going to read that to describe again. And you, he, our condition before Christ, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, and once you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And 
let me just um, expound on that a little bit. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, seeking foul, decaying corpses spiritually, living our lives apart from God, ignoring Him, ignoring His blessings and His goodness. We were in league with Satan, conspiring against His kingdom and against His throne. We worshipped ourselves and our own desires. We were idolaters and slave conformists to the world, deserving his anger and his judgment and nothing less than eternity in the lake of fire. So we were wicked and foul and dead. That was our condition, dead toward God. Nothing really that would seem desirable in us. And we weren't like Cinderella at all. We were more like wicked stepsisters, or worse. Um, I was thinking just a minute ago that Satan doesn't like us to talk about the grace of God. And he doesn't like us to talk about the grace of God, for one, because he wants us to feel like we have to earn God's favor or his love. And we have to work for that. And reality, there's nothing we can do to deserve his love and favor. Life in Jesus Christ is a grace. It's the grace of life in Jesus Christ. Also, Satan doesn't like us to talk about God's grace because it fuels our love for him. When we talk about God's grace, it makes us love him more. And it makes us want to serve him more, and it makes us want to glorify him. And Satan doesn't want God to have the glory for his grace. But as Christians or believers, um, well, Paul in Ephesians said that, told the Ephesians that they were the beneficiaries of the grace of life in Christ Jesus. And as Christians, we are the beneficiaries of the grace of life in Christ Jesus. So how do Christians experience the grace of life in Christ, in Jesus Christ? There are five ways Christians experience the grace of life in Jesus Christ in Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. Let's, let's look at verses 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your grace, uh, for life in Christ, that you have given us life in Christ, a relationship. Those of us who were far off, you brought us near through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, you have made us alive, and you've raised us and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. and By grace, we've been saved. We thank you, and we want to give you the glory this morning. 
Speak to us through your word so that we may find um, delight in your grace so that we might love you more and that you might be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are five ways Christians experience the grace of life in Christ. First, Christians experience the grace grace of life in Christ when God expresses his great love for us. First, Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God expresses his great love for us. There are really three words used for love in this passage. Mercy, love, and grace. And um, God's mercy in the Old Testament says in verse 4, let's look in verse 4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. So, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. God's mercy, this is the word here in the Old Testament, um, in, in the Septuagint, it would be used uh, that means loving, loving kindness, but also a forgiving love. That God doesn't hold our sins against us. Um, that He's forgiving, but His loving kindness—the word Chesed in Hebrew, um, often translated loving kindness or mercy—God's forgiving or gracious love. And uh, really, I think David um, explains what this means and very well in Psalm 51 when he says, Have uh, mercy, mercy, O God, according to your loving and kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquities, and cleanse me from my sins. Um. And when we talk about God's great love, um, I think most def- definitions fall short of, of defining God's love, but it's best defined by really what God has done for us. It's a sacrificial love, um, and it's a gracious love, but because we don't deserve it. But... It says here that it's his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in trespasses. So even when we were dead, foul, stinky, smelly, wicked stepsisters, um, God loved us. We were no Cinderella wearing a nice dress and glass slippers. <laughs> we were foul, stinky wicked stepsisters and yet God loved us in that condition he loved us when we were in league with Satan when we were his enemies and that's why it says in Romans 5 8 that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners Christ died for us while we were yet sinners Christ died for us so 
Jesus died for us, laid down his life for the sheep when we were unlovable in a sense, or we were, we were sinners, we were enemies of God. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that defines God's love, that he would give his only begotten Son what was most dear and precious to him for our salvation. How great is that love? And Jesus, that he would lay down his own life for us. Um, 1 John 4, 9 through 10 says, And this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into this world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So God loved us by sending us. Yeah, the father loved us by sending the son. The son loved us by laying down his life for the sheep, as we see in John 10. And these are the greatest expressions of love. It's really Christ. Christ's death on the cross is the greatest ex- expression of God's love for us. It defines how great God's love for us is that Jesus would die for our sins, that the Father would give up his Son for us. And as we, if we want to know how deep God's love, or how great God's love for, for us, we need to meditate on the cross and what Christ did for us on the cross and what God did for us on the cross. Um... And I would say also that um, Paul said of, of, of the greatness of God's love, um, in Ephesians, um, lost the reference, but that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the, all the fullness of God. So he talks about the width, the length, the depth, and the height to describe how great God's love is for us. That was Ephesians three seventeen through nineteen. So Christians experience the grace of life in Christ Jesus when God expresses His great love for us, and second, Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God makes us alive together with Christ. And. Uh, we're going to look in verse um, verse 4 again. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So God 
made us alive together with Christ. And really, um, if you look in verse 4, that is the transition. It said, but God. And those two words really are some of the most important words in the Bible. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were in this terrible condition. We were unlovable, enemies of God. But God made us alive. He brought us to life where there was no life. He raised us from the dead, as he did Lazarus. When he said, Lazarus, come forth, he raised us from the dead spiritually and gave us spiritual life. And so he made us alive together with Christ. That means he brought life where there was no life. That means we were spiritually dead, and now we have life, like Lazarus when he came out of the tomb. We have life toward Christ. We have the grace of life in Jesus Christ. And um, I think believe this refers to regeneration. And regeneration is that part of salvation where we were dead spiritually and now we have spiritual life. Regeneration is also referred to in John 3 as a new birth. Jesus told Nicodemus, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So, or born of the Spirit. That means that you doesn't ref, you're, you're, you were born as a child physically, but you need to have spiritual birth. You need to become alive spiritually. And this is what we refer to as regeneration, that part of salvation where we have life where there was no life. Um, Ezekiel thirty six twenty five through twenty seven also describes regeneration. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. So what God does is he gives us spiritual heart surgery. And he removes the dead heart of stone or the, um, that has no life toward God. And he gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that can believe, that can have faith, that can repent of sins, that a heart that wants to obey God a heart that desires God and wants to keep his statutes and do his judgments. God gives us that new heart. He gives us a heart that has spiritual life and life in Christ. First, he has to take out that old dead hard heart, that old heart of stone. Um, Colossians also, Colossians 2, 3, 13 through 15, is sort of a parallel passage to this passage. It says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. 
So, there we are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, and he made us alive, as he did, as it says he did here in Ephesians, having forgiven you all trespasses. So God regenerates us. He gives us life where there was no life, spiritual life. He takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. We're born again. And this also, I think, ties in with baptism or spiritual baptism because we're, we, we are identified, we're raised with Christ. And we're identified with the resurrection. And he's made us alive, and that's tied in with Christ coming, being raised from the dead after he died. And in a sense, we also died with him, it says in Romans chapter 6. The old man died. The heart of stone died. The heart of stone was removed. The dead stuff has to be cut out. Um, last year, I had to have my gallbladder removed. And so that I could, my digestive system could continue to function. And when they went in, it was necrotic, they called it. <laughs> my gallbladder was necrotic. It was dead. Um, it was decaying. And it had to be removed so that there could be life. Life could continue. And so there's a sense in which we, in Christ, have new life, but there's a sense in which there's a death, too. The old sinful stuff, the old man has to be crucified and done away with so that the new man can live. And that stinking, dying, decaying corpse has to be crucified so that there can be a new man in Christ, so there can be new life in Christ. So that's what God does for us. He gives us the grace of life in Christ. He, he makes us new, a new creation in Christ. If any um, man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. So Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when um, God expresses his great love for us when God makes us alive together with Christ. And third, Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God saves us by grace. Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God saves us by grace. And what are we saved from as Christians? What does God save us from? When he died, well, he saved us from our slavery to sin. He saved us from our slavery to Satan. And he saved us from the consequences of our sin, which would be the wrath of God and eternal punishment and hell. Um, He saved us from that life of rebellion and death and that life of enmity with God and, and gave us peace with God, gave us life in Christ. And he saved us by his grace, his unmerited favor, his undeserved love. It's not by anything that we did to earn salvation or earn this life. 
So Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God expresses his great love for us, when God makes us alive together with Christ, when God saves us by grace. And fourth, Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God raises us up together and makes us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does that mean, that God raises us up together and makes us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus? What are those heavenly places? Well, I I do think what helps is for us to look at Ephesians chapter 1, What helps us to answer the question of what this means would be to look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, or verse 20, when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So, verse 20, it says, Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all so i believe christ is actually raised to heaven he's raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the heavenly places. But this also refers to his position as king, as a position of authority, his position as sovereign, and his position over his enemies. He has conquered all of his enemies. All things have been put under his feet. This includes all principalities and powers and mights and dominion. These principalities and powers and mights and dominion refer to spiritual beings, wicked spirits, and in authority, in places of authority that rule over the earth. That God has defeated them and put Christ in authority over them. And, And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So God has given place... Christ in a position of authority over his enemies. He's above them. He's conquered them. He's seated at his right hand, ruling. And all things have been put under his feet. And he's given him to be the head of the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So what does it mean that Christ, that God has raised us and together made us sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I think it has to do partially with our position. In Christ, God has made Christ an authority and put him over his enemies, and he's put us in that position because of our union with Christ. Because we're united with Christ in his death and resurrection, because there's a union that takes place, and and through the indwelling spirit, and because we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, we're going to rule and reign with Him. There's a sense in which we haven't inherit, completely inherited 
with Christ yet, but there's a sense in which we partially have. There's an already not yet. That we already have an inherited authority with Christ over the enemy, over our adversary. That we, with Christ, have authority over wicked spiritual beings. That they're put under us, positionally. And this also has to do with the gospel, because... Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We have authority as ambassadors of the gospel under Christ that God has given us. We have authority over evil spirits and wicked spirits, the way that Jesus gave the apostles when he sent them out. But we have authority to preach the gospel and really to be ambassadors for Christ, to proclaim and representatives of Christ. We're united to Christ, and so we share in his authority and in his position. But I also think that in a sense... This that we're seated in the heavenly place is is that in a sense we are connected to heaven. You know, Christ is there in heaven. We're united with Christ. The Spirit indwells in us. There's a connection there. In some sense, we're there with Christ already. In some sense, we are spiritually living in the spiritual realm. We are spiritually united with Christ and tied to Him. And although we're not really in heaven, we're recipients of the blessings of the kingdom. And really, this sometimes this um, heavenly places has just been tied to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. But in a sense, through Christ, we're already tied to the kingdom of God. We're already part of the kingdom of God. We're already connected to the spiritual realm, we're already connected to heaven, that we're not there yet in a physical sense. We're there through him in a spiritual sense. That's kind of awesome to contemplate, though, isn't it? I mean, we are living in the kingdom of God. We're united to Christ. We're, we're seated in heavenly places. And it's kind of hard to fathom and understand and contemplate, but I do believe that's true, that through Christ and through our union with him, that we're there in a sense. We're in the spiritual realm. We're in the kingdom of heaven. For 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we shall already also reign with him. Romans eight sixteen through 17 says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So because of our inheritance with Christ, one day we're going to reign with him. We're going to inherit the kingdom with him. 
So Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God expresses his great love for us, when God makes us alive together with Christ, when God saves us by grace, when God raises us up together and makes us sit together in the heavenly places. And fifth, Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when in the ages to come, God shows us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And one commentator kind of pointed out that that doesn't have to start in the future. That really starts now. That God, in the ages to come, shows us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God who is rich in mercy. God who is rich in grace. Shows us his kindness, his love. His mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is going to continue to pour out his love and his kindness and his goodness and just give to us throughout eternity. Think of all the blessings that he gives us now. Think of all that he's provided for us. The relationships we have, the possessions we have, and and more than anything, knowing Christ and knowing Him and being able to talk to Him and hear His voice and read His Word and spend time with Him and time in worship, time contemplating what He's done for us, time worshiping Him and time knowing how much He loves us and think about what it's going to be like in His presence and physically in His presence to see His face to spend time with him. He's going to continue to lavish us with his love and kindness. Just like I imagine that the prince would for Cinderella or the wicked stepsister or whoever he married, uh, that he would continue just to show his goodness and kindness to her and they would live happily ever after. And there's a song um, by a new song, not the half has been told, a small part, but the whole, it's beyond imagination what's in store. Sooner eyes will behold, gates of pearl, streets of gold, but there's more, not the half has been told. And I believe what is so great about those fairy tales is not the palace and not, not for us, the gates of pearl or the streets of gold or the mansions. But what's so great about those, story, those fairy tales is that the prince is, Cinderella gets to be with the prince. And we're going to be with Christ forever. We're going to be with Jesus forever, face to face. We're going to be with our Savior and we're going to walk with him and know what it's like. Um, Right now we see only in part, but we're going to see fully what it's like to be with Christ, what it's like to be in the very presence of God in heaven. So Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when God expresses his great love for us, when God makes us alive together with Christ, when God saves us by his grace, 
when God raises us up together and makes us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Christians experience the grace of life in Christ when in the ages to come, God shows us the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Thank you.